Hello again, friends, and welcome back to Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. I'm Bob Kaler, your host, and I hope you've been enjoying the last several weeks as we have been sharing with you some of the talks from the global gathering that took place in May. We had a number of great speakers who gave uh, some great perspective on Scripture and on the future of the United Methodist Church and the future of the Global Methodist Church. We're really excited about where things are going. This is a, an interesting season, however, as we are in the midst of disaffiliation and transition. And my interview today is with Jay Therrell, who is the new president of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. Had a chance to sit down with him at a hotel in Southern California where we were attending one of the boot camps that the WCA is putting on for regional chapter leaders on disaffiliation and all the stuff that's going on in terms of moving churches from the United Methodist Church to the Global Methodist Church or wherever they might want to be. But I also want to pass along a program note for you, and that is that Stephanie Greenwald, who has been my co-host for these first three seasons of the podcast, has taken a step back. She's taken on a new role as first lady, as her husband has taken on presidency of uh, a university. And so I want to thank Stephanie for her work here on Holy Conversations. If you listen to her talk at the Global Gathering, you know that she is an incredibly talented preacher, uh, a a wonderful uh, person who expresses the gospel in a winsome way. And so we're going to miss having her on the podcast here, but I want to thank her and wish her and her husband and her whole family the best as they move into this new role. I hope to see her back again in the pulpit at some point because she really uh, has a talent, a gift from God for bringing God's word. And I hope you've had a chance to hear that. But I want to bring you now this interview I have with Jay Therrell from Southern California on all things going on with the United Methodist Church and with the Global Methodist Church and all things in between with disaffiliation. This is a wide-ranging interview. I, I was pleased to bring it. It was great to sit down with Jay in person. Here it is. Well, Jay, we're here in the lobby of the Sonesta Suites in Fountain Valley, California. We are, yes. Just happened to find ourselves here in California for yet another WCA event. That's right. Tell us what's happening since you've taken over as a WCA president. It's been a month and a half and, and an eventful one. It it has been eventful and it really kind of started before I ever took office. So I... I headed to Africa before I officially started and spent two weeks there, which was very helpful. What I learned very quickly with Africa is that it is very nuanced, uh, as nuanced as the United States is. So it really depends on what conference you're in, what country you're in, and who your bishop is as to what's going on there. And my heart really goes out to some of the clergy and laity in Africa who are just under some pretty oppressive circumstances. We have multiple bishops who have summarily, without any due process, suspended clergy for up to two years. Those clergy in Africa are paid through the annual conference, and so they've had no pay to support their families for two years. They are, uh, for lack of a better word, excommunicating laity 
there's no process for that in the wow. United Methodist Church. That's wow. a Catholic process, yeah. but they're doing it. Um, so I, I was encouraged in the sense that our sisters and brothers in Africa are people of great and deep faith that face a lot of very hard circumstances, but they do it with joy, and that was impressive. I also left with an awareness that they are excited and ready to move to the Global Methodist Church, which is which was neat to see as well. So that was before I ever started, but uh, since then we've had the entire U.S. annual conference season, with the exception of Upper New York. Upper New York's annual conference got delayed, so it'll be virtually held in October. But all the others are now over. Uh, I wish I could tell you we had a really good annual conference season. We did not. Uh, we, we had some successes in Texas. Uh, Northwest Texas, Central Texas, and the Texas Conference all were able to pass legislation at their annual conferences where they're pension trust funds the the overfunding in them will now be used to buy down the unfunded pension liability so in i believe two of those three conferences churches will be able to disaffiliate i think with no pension liability whatsoever to pay and in another it is dramatically reduced i talked to a pastor there who prior to the annual conference was going to owe a little over 700,000 in unfunded pension liabilities afterwards it dropped to 17,000 um, so that was a great success in Texas, but otherwise, uh, we have not had a lot of success. We've had a lot of bishops continuing to kind of create chaotic processes. I begin to wonder if that's on purpose, uh, because when there's chaos, confusion then begins to reign, and churches don't act as quickly, and they might get trapped. So that's a, a piece that's been, been going on as well. Um, and then lastly, uh, in July, I've been traveling all over the country. So uh, we've been doing training events in all the jurisdictions just to help our regional chapters better understand the landscape that they are facing right now and to better equip them with new resources so that they can, well, they can better help their local churches and clergy to depart the UMC and, and get to the Global Methodist Church. Yeah, so there's, a, there's an awful lot going on. There is. And we... I know in my conference we don't have the full picture on what disaffiliation actually looks like. Right. We have part of it, but then there's a property negotiation that takes place after the congregation takes a vote. Right. Others are having heavy penalties placed on them. Right. Some have no process at all. I spoke at the Western Pennsylvania conference. That's right. And they really don't have have not been given a, a clear process. Western Pennsylvania may have a process this week. I have I've I've heard of a meeting that uh, Bishop Moore Kakoy had over the weekend where she kind of verbally outlined a process, but the trustees still have not released any. And Bob, there, there are still a couple of annual conferences where the bishop is just flat out saying, particularly South Carolina, where the bishop is saying, I'm not violating the Book of Discipline, so no church can leave in this conference under 2553, period. So it's a very confused place, very and much so. and I find myself going back and forth almost every day. Kind of, do you have hope? Do you not have hope? Where, where do you go with this? And, and and there are people who say we just should just walk away and chuck it all, but but that carries with it its own set of challenges too. It does, and there will be people who will have to do that, 
And I want to say that's an honorable choice. But I also have a, a deep sympathy for folks who are in many ways being forced to consider leaving a place where their family may have generations of history. For that matter, they may have loved ones buried in a cemetery behind the church. And it's, it is unconscionable to me to imagine that a church is put in that place. Uh, in many, not all, but in many of those cases, the annual conference put little to no uh, financial resources into those churches, but yet they will reap a windfall. And doing so using the trust clause, I would argue in a weaponized way, uh, a way that was never intended by John Wesley. You know, Tim Tennant, the president of Asbury Seminary, has done a really good piece on the history of the trust clause. Wesley wrote the trust clause to ensure that Methodist buildings would be used for orthodox purposes. I think he would be dumbfounded to hear how it's being used today. So what kind of questions are you getting? I know that you are getting questions all the time from churches. What are some of the major ones that that you want to sort of let our people know because a lot of people are going to have the same questions. Sure. One of the questions that we get is surrounding just the process of 2553. I think some people in the pews just assume that there's a uniform process across the denomination. And I, I would understand why they might think that. that. That actually makes some rational sense. Unfortunately, we're in an era where there is not a lot of rationality. Uh, And so they don't understand when they talk to a friend in another state who's Methodist why they were disaffiliating with a certain process, but I then tell them the process in their state is different than the one their friend did. So we're really having to help people understand it is a conference-by-conference situation. And you may have a state like... uh, that has multiple annual conferences in it, East and West Ohio, North and South Georgia, North Alabama, Alabama, West Florida, Upper New York, New York. Uh, You may be in the same state, but you may have a different process depending upon which geography, you know, where your geography is, which part of the state you live in. So that's one question that we get a lot. Uh, Honestly, more and more people are asking about some sort of legal strategy. They are feeling pushed into a corner by progressive leaders and bishops. They can't afford the 2553 process. In a couple of conferences, I would argue the process has been written in such a way that a church cannot even complete it. With all due respect, I don't think any church in greater New Jersey will ever be able to complete that process. Mm -hmm. And I think the process was probably written that way on purpose. And so we have a growing number of people asking how do we pursue some sort of legal strategy to get out? They don't want to do that. It's a last resort, but they're asking about that more and more. I know Florida has, has initiated that process. They have. Uh, Florida, let's see, today's Tuesday, let's see, last Thursday night, they filed 106 churches came together to file a joint action and... Uh, there's a whole host of causes of action in that lawsuit. Most of them center around breach of fiduciary duty, breach of, uh, of trust, whether or not the trust is revocable, irrevocable, was a proper accounting ever offered by the denomination for the trust that exists, those sorts of things. 
Um, and of course, the ultimate goal really is to churches just want to be let go. And and I don't think Bob, I don't know a church that wants to just go with paying nothing. I mean they they understand there's some fairness in there. It's, I I don't find these churches wanting a windfall on their side. They're reasonable, but their Episcopal leaders won't even talk to them. And it it shouldn't be that they have to resort to lawyers to get their bishop to actually speak to them and negotiate with them. It's really hard to fathom, for me, why this is hard. Mm-hmm. Why why keep us in place those who those who are more orthodox those who can't buy into the direction that many of our annual conferences have gone right what's the upside other than financial for for these bishops I mean I think that's that's really at the end of the day what it comes down to if I'm being honest well I Bob I think you've hit the nail on the head I why else I. I think it's a strategy of trying to keep churches in so apportionment bases don't shrink. And even if people in the pews start to vote with their feet and leave the church, then the annual conference can take the property, close it, sell it, and take the proceeds. And even if the church leaves and they pay two years of apportionments, plus they pay unfunded pension liabilities, and as wet. Westpath confirms in the FAQ document they did, in almost every annual conference, those unfunded pension liabilities go to the annual conference, not Westpath. And they get put, by and large, in unrestricted pension trust funds, and the conference can use them for anything. It's a financial windfall for the conference every which way they go, and the only entity that is the victim in all of it is the local church. And I just don't see under any scenario how that's fair, Christian, or right. Yeah, I, I, I just don't. I, I, as I said to one of my progressive friends, I said, I don't know why you all can't take yes for an answer. I mean, we've really tried to to give them what what they want. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very difficult to to imagine any other scenario than than what we're what we're seeing here. It's true. And I, <laughs> we're a church, we're supposed to be a church. You know, Jesus teaches that we're supposed to treat each other the way we want to be treated. Every Sunday school student learns that, one of the very first things they learn. So why won't progressives just treat us the way they would want to be treated if the situation was reversed? I don't understand it. Other questions that you're getting? You know, a lot of the questions that we get often deal with the global Methodist church. Uh, People want to know about how to transfer in. Clergy want to know how to transfer in. Uh, So we're we're trying to help folks understand the WCA and the GMC are separate entities now. Uh, We are very closely aligned and our interests are aligned and we are the proud parent of the global Methodist church. So uh, we will do everything we can to watch it thrive and help it and ensure its success but we're trying to help folks get to the right people in the global methodist church to ask those questions it's actually um it's exciting to see that there's so many people wanting to know about the global methodist church so that's a good thing 
We get questions about that a lot. I get questions all the time about how many churches are in the Global Methodist Church, and so I always hand that off to our GMC folks. But the truth of the matter is we have, through this annual conference season, just over 300 churches across the U.S. annual conferences that have disaffiliated. Not all will go to the Global Methodist Church, but certainly the majority, the vast majority will. Um, but there are a whole lot more churches coming behind that this fall. So many annual conferences have called special annual conferences, starting probably in September all the way through December to the end of the year. And uh, so there'll be hundreds, if not well over a thousand more churches that will be disaffiliating this fall. And so the, the GMC is growing and will be continuing to grow quickly, which is a neat thing to watch. It is exciting to see that, uh, although at times f- there are many of us who feel stuck. Oh, I, especially in the West. I mean, my heart goes out to all of our friends in the West. It has to f- feel lonely, and it has to probably feel in some ways oppressive because you have conference leaders that are not doing anything p- to support you and in many ways are making decisions that are a hindrance to you. I said to someone, it, it feels, not, not that we're Moses, but but it feels a little bit like, like the Mount Nebo moment. You're, sure. you're watching everybody else that cross the sense. promised land and mm-hmm. realize you might be buried here, mm-hmm. you know, unless you do something something radical. or, But, you know, like for us, planting a new church is is not easy from a from a property standpoint because right. our property values have gone through the through the roof even right. renting a space is really difficult so right. so those are major decisions that have to be made you can't just sort of walk away and and do that it, no. it makes it much more difficult so I totally get it yeah I totally get it and I I think we've got to help support churches in the west as much as we can I hope that and I'll you know I'll defer to my friend Keith Boyette on this but I hope the new partnership between the GMC and Asbury Seminary to do new church planting will assist with some of that and I know they're continuing to raise funds to help with that so I I hope that will be the case and I've been involved with the the new extension in Colorado Springs of Asbury Seminary and they are offering a certificate in church planting okay. starting this fall. I think it's a two-year program. Okay. And I think if you sign up before this fall and you start this fall, you get 50% tuition scholarship. Oh, wow. So okay. That's you might want to look deal. at Asbury Seminary website, certificate in church planting, and you, you can find that. I think it's called missional discipleship, something like that. But, but it, it's a church planting certificate. Well, you, you know better than most, the, the harvest is ripe in the western part of the United States. We need good Orthodox Wesleyan churches in the western United States. And I think there are a lot of places, not just in the west, but around the country, where there are disaffected people who, I, I got calls this week from some laypersons saying, what do we do? You know, we can't stay where we are. We don't want to go down the street to you know, the the other evangelical church down the street. It's great, right. but that's not us. Sure. What do we do with that? And it's really difficult because, you know, as a as still a United Methodist clergy person, it's hard to go say, well, I'll help you plant that because you can still be... Brought up on charges. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I, 
And, and I know I'm not alone in that. There are a You're lot not. of people in that same situation across, across the, the world. But one of the neat things in the global Methodist church from a church planning perspective is that when the transitional book of doctrines and discipline was written, I was one of the three authors of it, that we, we have really tried to make that church as permission-giving as possible and as, as little as possible a gatekeeping sort of mindset. And when it comes to new church starts, we really want to see people be free to pursue whatever the Holy Spirit might be calling them to. So it might be a network of house churches, and that might be a model that has to happen at first in places where property values are not conducive to being to able to go out and buy a couple acres and put up a building. And, so. and, and it may be part of the part of the upside of the pandemic was discovering that mm-hmm. sort of linkage technologically between those communities. That's right. It, it could, it could function in that way to some degree. I mean, we've, we've talked about that a lot with some of these folks saying, you know, th- there is an opportunity for you to do that mm-hmm. and to connect with a church that, you know, may give you, and then, uh, you know, give you, uh, preaching support or what have you. But, um, but it, it, it's, a, it's a tough situation. I imagine we're going to have to explore some of those things more and more. We're going to have to get weird. We, yeah. And, but you know what? <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Yeah. The Holy Spirit works throughout all yeah. that. I mean, people thought, uh, you, you know who Craig Grishell is. Yeah. Uh, people thought he was crazy when he founded Life Church and the model that a they were A former United Methodist, by the way. A former United yeah. Methodist from Oklahoma. And uh, who, who was treated badly by the Board of Ordained Ministry there and said, I'm out. I'm not doing this anymore. Uh, and I think Life Church, at least it was, it may still be the largest church in the United States today. So, and it's used to, it is leverage it's technology. It's everywhere. Everywhere. Leverage technology. Yeah. I didn't know this. Someone told me last week they have a campus in the metaverse. So I guess you put on a VR headset and you go to life church in virtual reality i don't know how it works i don't own a virtual reality headset maybe you can dial up the look of your preacher or something I like don't that know. my yeah. people would love that there you actually. go yeah my 17 year old could tell you how it works <laughs> i have no clue but yeah, yeah it's it, it it's a different time but there's a lot of opportunity in the there midst is. of this so it's easy to dwell on you know the the loss or the the brokenness we have what where are you finding hope yeah, so I, I often quote Billy Graham, love Billy Graham. Billy Graham would say, I have read the whole Bible. I know how the story ends. God wins. And he's right. And so I'm an optimist by nature always. It's tough for theological conservatives in the United Methodist Church right now. It's really tough. But I know God wins, and I know it's going to be okay. And doesn't mean it won't be hard. Jesus said following him was going to be hard. He said we had to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow him no matter what. But I know in the end God is going to win, and I have to pin my hope to that. And I I go to Scripture. uh, One of my favorite Scripture passages, you'll hear me talk about this tomorrow, as a matter of fact, comes from Isaiah 43, where God reminds Israel that he loves them, he has called them by name, they are his, he will not let the rivers wash over them, and he will not let the fires consume them. And I just think we have to remember that we have that amazing God, and he is at work doing 
doing wonderful things. And sometimes in those those birth pangs, uh, there is pain, and sometimes there's some death, but there's always resurrection. As I talk to the pastors in my band meeting, and as I talk to other clergy, the the guidance I've kind of received from the Lord, at least for me, and and among us, has kind of been. Look, the the task of discipleship continues regardless of what label you have on the outside. That's right. And that stuff will will work out at some point eventually. And even if it doesn't, we still have the same task to Mm -hmm. make disciples. And no one can stop you from doing that. That never goes away. Right. We have to do that. Yeah. And, you know, I might argue that's part of the reason why we have gone, gone awry in the United Methodist Church, we have forgotten that. We have stopped in many ways making the main thing the main thing and carrying out the Great Commission. And if we truly love the people that are in our sphere of influence, don't we want them to have the same amazing, saving, transforming love and grace that we have? We should. Um, We should be burning white hot passionate. Uh, for sharing the greatest story that's ever told. I don't think John Wesley could conceive otherwise. His advice to his preachers includes my favorite one of all of his list of advice to preachers. You have nothing to do but to save souls. Period. Be spent. Spend and be spent in this work. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, It's interesting to me now that I'm seeing more and more uh, folks in, who are going to remain in the United Methodist Church saying, look, our doctrines are not going to change. The WCA is is telling lies about us by saying things are, are all going to change. C- can you address that? Because I, I think sure. that's a question that I certainly hear from among our laity and, and in different places. Uh, I hear all the time that the doctrinal standards of the United Methodist Church have not changed and that they will not change because of the restrictive rule in the UMC Constitution. And my response to that, I'm not trying to be flippant, but my response to that is the doctrinal standards are like seatbelts. They're only good if you use them. Mm. And I see a whole lot of people across the connection that are doing and saying things that don't even come close to comporting with the doctrinal standards of the United Methodist Church. So you can say that they're there and they're in a book, but just because they're in a book does not mean that people are following them. And that is true consistently now, and I would say in most parts of the United Methodist Church, at least in the United States, probably true in in Europe as well. We have an interview coming up on the podcast with Roger Olson, who's written a new book called Mm -hmm. Against Liberal Theology, where he talks about this issue saying, yeah, the standards might be there, but do you interpret them historically, classically, or in orthodox way, sure. or symbolically? And, and that really becomes the divide in right. many ways, uh, and how how we interpret those things. Is it one among many, or is it or is it the the bedrock of what you're talking about? So, th- th- those are interesting conversations. I think we have to continually have, even with our people, to help them understand what do we mean when we say orthodox. What do we mean when we say you know, doctrinal standards, those kinds of things. So getting people to understand, I said to my congregation, how many of you have read the articles of religion? (laughs) Nobody. 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 So, so we have to teach that. Sure. 
And we have to teach about the creeds, and we have to we teach do. about what, what we mean when we talk about the authority of Scripture. This is a time to be doing that. I, I actually, um, I'm probably getting off topic, so forgive me, but it's probably my uh, own thoughts about the contemporary church. I, I think we have tried so hard to be relevant and cool that we have forgotten to teach the fundamentals and basics in many ways. And I think it's been to our detriment. I, I think we've got to do a better job of that. It's one of the reasons why I'm excited about the new catechesis for the Global Methodist Church. And I hope and pray that the GMC will really embrace that so that folks who are members of the GMC can say, I, yeah, I actually know what the articles of religion are, and not just for the sake of knowing what they are, but because they're really foundational statements, and they should be formative to who we are as followers of Jesus and the Wesleyan tradition. I'm excited about that. I hope we don't miss the moment that I think we could capture uh, if, if, we'll, if we'll really hold on to that. Yeah, the doctrine and practices, you know, as we've talked about the you know, the class and band meeting, all yes, those kinds of things that are, so. yes. that are uh, we have to make Methodism Methodist again. We do. And, and even in a sense, make Christianity Christian again. And it worked, right? I mean, up until the Civil War, the Methodist movement by far and away was the largest church in the United States. The last statistic I saw I think it was up into the late 1840s, was about 38% of all Americans, not Christians, Americans were Methodists because we were so prolific in sharing the good news of Jesus and helping people to then understand what it meant to live that out through spiritual disciplines, through class meetings, through band meetings, and all those sorts of things. We've got to recapture that. We've got to recapture I, that. I think of John Stewart, the comedian's quote about Methodism. He said something like, it's the University of Phoenix of Religions. You pay <laughs> your 40 bucks and, and you get your graduate certificate. Or, it kind of feels like it yeah, sometimes. Yeah. We, and we probably need to look in the mirror and own some of that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and realize it's going to be difficult to make that transition. Sure it will. And that we live in a culture today that is increasingly growing hostile to the Christian faith. So it's going to look really different as we get deeper and deeper into the 21st century than it ever did in the 20th century, ever. So um, we have to, and we're going to live in the tension of that because we still have baby boomers around. We still have a few builders that are left, their, their parents, uh, who were used to a very different idea of church and culture. We have Xers like me who are smack dab in the middle of the tension. And then you have millennials and Gen Zs who just think it's totally irrelevant what their grandparents and great-grandparents know about church. Uh, it's For those of us who are in the church right now, I don't think we'll ever not live in a moment of tension in, in between those two. Yeah, and pieces. our brothers and sisters in the majority world are going, welcome to our world. They are, I know. It's true. <laughs> it's true. You're right. Yeah, yeah. You're right. What, what kind of encouragement can you give to churches, and what should we be doing right now? So I, I try to help people understand there is a sense of urgency. I think the absolute worst thing that a church can do right now is wait. And I sometimes, in fact, I even heard this yesterday. Someone said, well, 
why why do we all of a sudden need to hurry you know we why can't we just take our time and my first response to that is I mean, my goodness, we've been dealing with this. Well, it really depends on how far back you want to take the calendar. We could say 2019 to the Special General Conference. We could we could go back to 2016 to the Commission on a Way Forward. That's, what, six years ago? We could take that actually a couple decades or more back. So I, when I hear people say, well, why do we need to hurry? You know, I, I just want to say, oh, my goodness, you have no idea. So I, I want people to understand there is a sense of urgency for multiple reasons. Um, paragraph 2553 sunsets. It sunsets December 31st of 2023, but your process has to be complete by then. I got this question yesterday. Someone thought as long as they were in the queue to disaffiliate mm-hmm. by December 31st, they were fine. That's not correct. They actually have to have everything done all the t's crossed all the i's dotted the conference has to vote on it everything has to be completed and many of our annual conferences intentionally have set up really strict deadlines that you have to meet for example i saw the disaffiliation process a couple days ago for the wisconsin conference it has many deadlines and they are in a very short succession right after each other and you've got to thread that needle and you've got to be moving now if you aren't starting that process now you're in trouble so the worst thing a church can do is wait 2553 will sunset if they wait for general conference it will be gone the bishops have asked for a declaratory decision on paragraph 2548.2 the WCA helped write a brief for that, along with our, our friends at Good News and UM Action. I think it's a very strong brief. I wish I could tell you it will uh, persuade the Judicial Council. I don't think it will. I, I fully expect the Judicial Council to rule in favor of the bishops. So I think that exit ramp will be shut down. So if folks wait till general conference, the only exit ramp that will officially be in the book of discipline that's left to them is closure under paragraph 2549. And the delegate math is real iffy for 2024. So it's a bad idea to try to wait for a better provision come from that general conference. It's time to move. I think that was a big question people had was, well, we hear, you know, that we're going to pursue this in 2024 and we'll pass the protocol and all shall be well. And I, I caution people against that. I I think that is a, a bad assumption. I think it's probably an assumption made with good meaning. And I think some people, some people have heard or read that Africa now has a majority of the church, which is true, they do in laity, but they forget that delegate allocations start with clergy because you have to equalize clergy with laity and the clergy number's fixed. And even though Africa now has the majority of the laity in the United Methodist Church, the United States far outweighs Africa in the number of clergy. It's not even close because retired elders and deacons count and they have to be equalized as well. And so it skews the delegation numbers heavily towards the United States. And because the United States has become so progressive now, 
I think it is highly unlikely at General Conference 2024 that we're going to be able to do something without partnering with progressives and centrists. And we'll try, but that's a precarious place to be. Talk a little bit. Talk a little bit a bit about um, what's happening with jurisdictional conferences. I was unclear about that. Somebody asked me a question about that yesterday, sure. and election of bishops, all that kind of stuff. Where is all of that stuff at this point? So the. The Council of Bishops asked for a ruling from the Judicial Council on that, and we now have just begun to live in this era where the Judicial Council seems to be handing down decisions that give the bishops whatever they want. So they have ruled that jurisdictional conferences can take place. Those have now been scheduled. They are scheduled for November, so those will occur. The Judicial Council has ruled that bishops can be elected and so all of the jurisdictions are planning, to my knowledge, are planning on holding elections for bishops in November. Uh, my favorite was the Judicial Council ruled recently, after they ruled that jurisdictional conferences could take place and bishops could be elected, they then about a week later ruled and said, and bishops can officially be assigned permanently on January 1st, 2023, and any bishop who hasn't reached six, uh, age 68 by a certain date will be retired on that day. And then they say, we have no authority to make that decision, but we're going to do it anyway. Wow. Uh, just because we think the episcopacy needs to be continued, so we're going to do it anyway. So what They that, admit it. So what that means then is that in some annual conferences, they could be getting new bishops midstream in the midst of all this disaffiliation stuff. No, it absolutely means annual conferences will be getting new bishops. And... And here's another reason why churches should not wait. Your annual conference may have a kind of clean 2553 process where the conference is not adding any additional requirements. By the way, I still think even under that scenario, 2553 is punitive. And I'm happy to talk about that if you want to. But let's say you have a... 20 <laughs> Preaching to the choir here. <laughs> I, I know. But let's say you're in a conference that has just a clean 2553 process. You get a new bishop on January 1st. The new bishop goes to the conference's board of trustees and says, I think we should add up to 50% of the fair market value of the real estate of the church to the disaffiliation process. It could totally change. By the way, we've already seen that happen. So in Pendel, the Pendel conference, if you were in the queue to disaffiliate under 2553 prior to midnight on July 1st, you had a clean 2553 process. If you waited till one second after midnight on July 1st, you had all new financial requirements added to it. That is why churches don't need to wait. They need to be moving now. Wow. Oh, my. Well, it, it's good to talk. <laughs> I know I don't. Sometimes, I don't bring lots of uh, unicorns and roses when I, I visit these Sometimes the truth. Days, I mean, you said you're a natural optimist. I am. Which I, which I really I promise. I am. I, I always tell people that the definition of a pessimist is an optimist with experience. So I've heard that before. Yeah, I've heard that before, and I get it. Um, but I, but the job of a leader first is to set the landscape. Yeah, and it just is what it is, and we need to be honest about it, be particularly so that churches understand they need to stop waiting. It is time to move. If you've not had these discussions, if your pastor is preventing these talks from happening, you need to be, here's the phrase that I use with everyone, you need to be respectfully firm. 
We're always respectful because we follow Jesus, but you're going to need to be firm. And sometimes, Bob, I think United Methodists can suffer from what I call terminal niceness. Yeah. Uh, we, we become doormats. And I don't ever read Jesus being a doormat in any of the Gospels. Jesus flipped tables over in the temple. He was angry, righteously angry, and and many uh, times tells people, go and sin no more. And we need to be respectful, but we're going to have to be firm. And so laity may have to get to a place where they're going to have to look at their pastor who won't have this conversation and say, Pastor, I love you, but with all due respect, we have to have this conversation. And if you're not willing to do it, then you're going to force your lady to go off campus and have this discussion. And I promise nothing good comes from that. So, Yeah, and you've been meeting with regional leaders and so we want to encourage people to get connected to their regional wca chapter absolutely so the wca at its global legislative assembly adopted a new mission statement that has four new objectives and that means the regional chapters now have that identical new mission with four objectives and we are really now looking to the regional chapters to be the clearinghouses and their conferences for assisting their churches and clergy. And so I would say to folks who are listening, if you don't know how to get in contact with your regional leader, if you go to the WCA's website, wesleyancovenant.org, click connect us and scroll down and you will see a list of every single regional chapter the chapter president, their phone number, and their email address. And I promise they would be more than happy to help you. And we're having that meeting here tomorrow for Western Jurisdiction Leaders, a small remnant here in the West. But that, a faithful that, remnant. That has yet to bow the knee to bail. Yes. And a mighty remnant. <laughs> you know what? I, I'm really proud of our Western folks. It's not easy. And you and many others stand up anyway, and you contend for the faith entrusted to you in an extraordinarily difficult atmosphere, and praise God for that. So I, you'll never hear me say anything other. I'm so, so grateful for y'all. Well, Jay, we thank you for spending some time. And, My privilege. Uh, thank you. For those of you who are uh, new to the podcast, we hope that you'll go back and listen to some of our episodes. We're in season three. We've got some great stuff coming up, uh, interviews with Roger Olson and uh, Beth Caulfield and her new book. Excellent. On um, It's a great book. I'm, pe- a, I'm pe- a little over halfway through it. Yeah, so. People Throw Rocks at Things That Shine. We're going to be interviewing her here in an upcoming episode and doing some others as well as we try to equip you for Amen. what's ahead. And as always, you can send us your questions and comments about the podcast to podcast at wesleyandcovenant.org. You can follow us on Twitter at WCA Pod. Thank you, Jay. Thank you for having me. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you here next time on Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association.